great to be here in the house of God, right? Amen. Always a privilege. You know, uh, I, last time I was up here, I had really short notice. Uh, uh, pastor asked me to fill, and I, I had some short notice, and putting together a sermon for that uh, was a heartbreak. Uh, this time around, I had more time I had uh, to prepare and to put stuff together, and I found that that's even more stressful and more complicated. Even uh, as of this morning, I'm over here with my pen writing, yeah, that won't work, move this, move that. I was like, how pastor does this week after week after week is beyond, <laughs> is beyond me. But as if putting a sermon together wasn't stressful enough, one of the things we didn't, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have to worry about is a pre-sermon video. Because other than Pastor uh, Tim and Pastor Peter, they get pre-sermon videos. If you're a speaker, a guest speaker, or whatever, you don't have to worry about a pre-sermon video. But that all changed a couple weeks ago when Doug Nearpass stood up here and did a pre-sermon video. And so he kind of threw the gauntlet down. And, and now, on top of putting together a sermon, I'm pressured with doing a pre-sermon video. And I finally got something down packed. And I, by the way, I apologize ahead for what you're about to see, but here you go. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I reached out to, believe it or not, I reached out to Doug last night, and I was like, I need help with this thing, and the suggestions he was giving me was beyond anything I could do. I'm like, I'm not doing any of that stuff, and, uh, but anyways, after, after talking with him, I said, you see, Doug, it's these videos, and then me and you wonder why rarely does Pastor Tim allow us up here, but uh, anyway, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, let's pray and dive right into this today. Father, we thank you once again for bringing us together uh, into your house to pray, to worship, uh, to, to uh, recognize your involvement in our life, Father. We are so grateful for the calling that you have given each and every one of us, Father. And we thank you. We open our hearts. We open our minds. Speak uh, to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're, we're all familiar with the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice are at play. And we know what that means, right? Uh, when the cat's away, the mice pretty much get the run of the house. They, they eat everything. They do whatever. They, they basically throw a party. Uh, looking through that expression, I found out that it has a, or, a Latin origin, and it comes from a Latin phrase. I'm going to try to pronounce it. Uh, but it's dum felis dormit mus godit et exi litantro, I think. Uh, but the Latin phrase basically means when the cat sleeps, the mouse leaves his hole rejoicing. When the cat falls asleep, the mouse leaves its hole rejoicing. I found out that that Latin phrase gave way to many different expressions. Uh, for example, in Russia, uh, it, the, the translation uh, literally means when uh, without a cat, there's freedom for the mice. Uh, a German translation renders it, when the cat is out of the house, the mouse run on tables, right? Uh, in Spanish, uh, uh, the translation, and I could actually pronounce this one, it says, Cuando el gato no está, los ratones bailan. When the cat is not present, the mice throw a party. Because if they're Spanish mouse, every excuse is an excuse for a party. So when the cat's not there, we, we, but we basically understand the impression, right? When the cat's away, the mice are at play. It means that when we are unsupervised, 
we tend to relax our guard. We tend to put our guard down. We tend to relax. We tend to get lazy. We tend to do things that we normally wouldn't do when the supervisor's there. Every student knows in a classroom when the teacher walks out uh, to, to do a conference outside, speak to a student outside, and she leaves the room alone, the kids in the classroom pretty much stop doing work. They start teasing each other, throwing papers at each other. They start fooling around, right? Because the cat's away, the mice will play. At work, we all know when you're working and your boss is there and your boss is looking at you and, and watching uh, your work and doing everything, you're at your top guard, you're, you're doing everything you're supposed to, but when the boss is absent, you kind of take a little extra lunch, you kind of relax a little, it's, it's the pressure's off, and you start doing things you normally wouldn't do. As I was putting this together, I was remembering uh, years ago when I was younger, much younger, I, I worked with a team at the eye doctor, and it was a small office about the size of this uh, you know, it wasn't a really big office uh, when, you, when you think of it, but it was about maybe half the size of this room, and, and we were there, and the manager would work, and so the manager was right there on you. And so you were always on your guard, making sure if you had nothing to do, you'd start vacuuming the rug, filing files, doing all those kinds of things. But there were those days when the manager wasn't there. And when those days when the manager wasn't there, and it was just us, we would throw a party. And one of the things that we would start doing as workers is, unfortunately, we, well, it was kind of fun at the time, we wanted to compete with each other, and so we would go into the doctor's office, pull out uh, his stuff, and we would start dilating our eyes. And all of us would start dilating our eyes, and then we would go out to meet the clients. And so we're sensitive to light, we can't see, and we're like dealing with clients, and we're like, uh, hi, Susie, I think, is that your name? You know, and, and we were just doing crazy stuff, right? Because the cat's away, the mice will play. And it's that concern that Paul has here for the Philippian saints. He's been about two and a half years away in prison. He hasn't been there. And he was concerned about the conduct that they would have while they were, not super, while they were unsupervised. You know, you and I as believers, we come together on church on Sunday. We congregate. We fellowship. We minister one to another. But then after, after service is over, we go out into all the world. Into our, dis into our homes, our professions, our, uh, the different places where God has called us, and basically we're unsupervised, right? We leave church, we go out into the world, and we're unsupervised. And so it's that tendency of knowing that we're unsupervised that we tend to relax the guard. We tend to play around a little bit more. We tend to maybe fool around. We tend to maybe take that extra long lunch, extra... Uh, a couple minutes, uh, we, we end up doing things we normally wouldn't do had we been supervised. And it's that concern that Paul has, and it's that reason that he's writing to the Philippians, because while he was there, he wanted to find them conducting themselves in an appropriate manner. If we start on verse 27, he says there, we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. When Paul wrote this, he was writing to the Philippians, and they were in an area of national pride. Philippians was a colony. They had uh, uh, been designated so by the Roman government. And as a colony, they enjoyed all the benefits of being Roman citizens. They enjoyed all the benefits of being a city just like Italy. Uh, and so, therefore, everything about them was Roman dress, Roman style, Roman conduct, Roman customs. Okay, And it was an area of national pride. In fact, in Philippi, a lot of uh, soldiers retired, and they would go to Philippi to retire there. 
And so when we, when we think of Philippi, we're thinking of national pride. We're thinking of, of what it means to be a Roman. And so the Philippians understood the type of what Paul was saying and what Paul was indicating when he said to them, conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. If we look at the word manner of life, the word manner of life is a translation of the Greek word polytuemi, and it comes from the root word polis, which means city, and it basically means to be a citizen. In other words, what he's talking to them about is the obligation of, uh, what he's talking to them about is conducting oneself with proper reference to one's obligation as part of some community. Okay, so he's not just talking about conduct yourself, hey, be a good Christian, do what's right, be a nice person. What he's talking about is that now as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they have loyalties and obligations to their citizenship in heaven, and they need to live their lives in a manner that's worthy of that calling. Okay, in other words, we see this, uh, just to get a little bit on, on this word, in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, when Paul was brought before the chief priest and he was accused of uh, or charged with speaking and going up against Moses, Paul said uh, in Acts 23, 1, he said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You know what? The words have lived translate the same Greek word. What Paul was uh, communicating by that word is that as he was being charged with speaking against Moses, Paul was in essence saying, when I came and I, uh, uh, as a citizen of Israel, as a Jew, I have discharged all the duties that were required of me as a Jew. Okay? In other words, I have conducted my politics, my life. I have conducted myself in a manner that's appropriate. There's nothing that you could say against me. I have conducted myself accordingly. In essence, when Paul writes to the Philippians then by the use of this word, because later on in Philippians 3.20, he will remind them that they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so in other words, Paul was reminding them that we now have a, a citizenship that demands our highest attention, uh, that demands our highest devotion, that demands our highest loyalties, that when you or I, irrespective of, of where, we were, where we were born, where we were raised, all that kind of stuff, God called us out of that into his kingdom, translating us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear sons. And you and I now possess a dual citizenship here on earth, but also in heaven. We now have that dual citizenship. And this concept, this idea of uh, politeo, this, this politics, uh, political life conduct that Paul was talking, uh, was something that was a basic and firm understanding of Christians all throughout their lives, that they lived in two kingdoms, that they had dual citizenships, and that should those two citizenships or those two kingdoms collide, the citizenship in heaven was to demand our highest devotion. Paul, uh, the, the, Peter made this concept clear to, when the chief priest commanded him to no longer preach the gospel. He said this, we must obey God rather than men. You're giving us an order but our loyalties are to a different kingdom. Our loyalties are to a different, our citizenship is in another kingdom. Our loyalties are to another king. And we have to obey God rather than man. You know, early on in the fifth century, after the fall of Rome, Rome was considered the eternal city that, that, that will never be destroyed. And after its fall, Augustine penned uh, a, a response to the fall of Rome uh, to the Christians there and 
uh, his treatise was called The City of God. And in it, he talked about that as Christians, we are building the city of God while living on the city of man. And he argued from the two, command, the two greatest commandments that those two greatest commandments outline for us as believers our duties that we owe to each kingdom. To the city of God, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, spirit, mind, and body. But to the city of man, we are to love our neighbors as Christ has loved us. And those were the duties that we owe to each cities. But if ever those two cities came into conflict, because the city of God had all our heart, soul, spirit, mind, and body, we were to prefer the kingdom of God or the city of God over the city of man. In other words, it, it, it is not that we cannot enjoy our life here in the, uh, in the city of man. We recognize that God has created this earth, that all the earth and all, all that's in it belong to God. God has blessed us with the goodness in this world, and we could enjoy and, 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 and rejoice in this world and all that this world has to offer and all the blessings that God has to offer. But Christians have always understood that we are just pilgrims and sojourners in this country, that this is not our permanent dwelling place, that like Abraham, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That our hope, our eternal city, is in heaven, not here on earth. That everything here on earth is temporary. And so therefore, between the temporary and the eternal, we prefer the eternal over the temporary. Right? 1,500 years later, uh, during the Reformation, John Calvin uh, goes out and he writes the Institutes of the Christian Faith, trying to outline uh, you know, the understanding of, of, of Christians. And he writes about that the Christian attitude is one of submission, one of meekness, humbleness, that as Christians we submit as, as children to our parents, we submit to uh, elders and, and uh, pastors, elders, we submit to uh, civil authorities, we submit one to another in the body of Christ, and we submit to all forms of laws and customs uh, imposed on us here in the city of man. But then he says this, he says, however, how preposterous were it in pleasing men to incur the offense of him for whose sake you obey men. The Lord, therefore, he's king of kings. When he opens his sacred mouth, he alone is to be heard instead of all and above all. We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. Notice what he's saying. We are subject we are subject to, to the city of man only, only in the Lord, as long as the city of man does not require of us to go against our Lord, right? And you've got to understand, in the Reformation, they, had that prince, uh, the, they developed that Protestant rule, that sola scriptura, scripture alone. That scripture is the word of God, and because it is the word of God, only scripture becomes our rule for faith and practice. And should ever anyone impose upon us or constrain us to violate the rules and the customs and the directives of scripture, we were to submit to God rather than man. If we fast forward to the 1800s, my favorite theologian here from New Jersey, Princeton University, Charles Hodge, uh, when he was discussing the three offices of Christ, he was discu uh, discussing Christ as prophet, priest, and king. When he got over to the area of discussing Jesus Christ and his person as king, he said the following, uh, what are the implications of having Jesus as king? He said this, the allegiance of the people terminate on Christ. 
they are bound to obey others only insofar as obedience to them is obedience to him. Notice the believer's obedience terminates in Christ. Why? Because that is where we're citizens from. You know, in April, I had the opportunity to visit Cuba and being raised in a Cuban home, I enjoy everything there is about being Cuban, right? Our foods, our customs, our songs, and, you know, and, and I know that there might be other Spanish people here, but, you know, everybody knows Cubans, we are the top of the food chain. When it comes to Spanish people, we're just tops. We are. So, and I just enjoy everything Cuban. When I was in Cuba, and if, if, if you speak Spanish, you understand that, it, you know, whether you're Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, uh, everyone has a way to speak Spanish. And Cubans have their way of speaking Spanish. And I was in Cuba just enjoying everybody with all their nuances and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? There was this restaurant hotel that was very high class, very uh, high end, very classy, and everybody was going there. There was just one problem. Prior to going there, I had found out that from our State Department, uh, there, were certain, there was a list of places that the State Department of the U.S. was requesting citizens not to go to because those particular places, the, the, uh, those establishments, if you went, the profits would go to fund the government, right? And we understand during the Obama administration, uh, the U.S. and Cuba kind of had a friendly relationship, and then things have soured over under the Trump administration, and so now there's, there's all those, I don't even understand half of what's going on. But nonetheless, the State Department said, uh, requested of citizens not to go there. You know what? I saw a lot of people there. I did not go. I didn't go. I didn't let my family go. We went to other businesses and, and gave our money there. I didn't do it because somebody was watching me. I wasn't doing it because I would get arrested if I go or anything like that. But, you know, I consider myself an American citizen. I was born here. This is the country that received my father when he fled Cuba. This is my homeland. This is my citizenship. And even though I'm in a foreign land enjoying everything that that land has to offer, how could I possibly work against the interests of this country that has given me so much, right? And so in the same way, when Paul is telling the uh, Philippians, conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy, when we think about everything that Jesus did to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us, to pull us out, redeem us, the promises, the inheritance that we have, how could we possibly be in this foreign land working against the interests of the kingdom by which our citizens derives from? You know, let me give you just uh, one more. And when, uh, you know, in China, they're cracking down on Christians. And so Pastor Wang Yi, pastor of the Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, he took it upon himself to write a declaration, a, a public declaration of faithful obedience to Christ. And in that, he said that the church was not in any sense fighting for rights. We weren't fighting for political activism. We don't have any intention of changing any institutions or laws in China. However... The Bible teaches us that in all manners relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not man. So he lays it out. He's making a public declaration in China. Hey, you know what? We're not here trying to change things. We're not here trying to overthrow the government. We don't want institutional changes. We're not political activists. We're not fighting for rights. That's not what we're here for. However, we have to make clear if we have to obey either you or God, we have to go with God. And so 
we see this, this was something that the Philippians would understand. If you remember when, when Paul went to uh, uh, Philippi to, uh, in his missionary journey in Acts chapter 16 when he was there, uh, one of the reasons they locked Paul up was they accused him of being a Jew and advocating customs and traditions that are not lawful for us Romans to do. So they understood that concept. They were Romans. They, their pride was in, their Rome, uh, in being Roman. And they were looking at Paul and, and saying, you know what, this guy, he's not a Roman, he's a Jew. And he's bringing about customs and traditions that we as Romans cannot follow. So the Philippians understood exactly what Paul was saying, that they now had a higher duty, a higher devotion from where their citizens came from. That you and I as believers, the scriptures being the word of God, uh, uh, become our rule of faith and practice and customs. That yes, we're in this world and we enjoy everything that there is in it. However, should the two cities collide, one city gets our loyalty. Daniel Webster uh, in 1828 defined duty as that which is owed to another. Okay, it is what one does irrespective of whether or not we're being watched. It's what one does irrespective of the results. Because it's a duty, it's an obligation, it's what I owe as a fellow citizen in this commonwealth. Well, we remember the definition is we're talking about the duties or the obligations that we owe to each other as members of this new citizenship, of this new kingdom, of this new city. And you see, conformity to his will is the obligation that we owe him. But as members together of the same commonwealth, we're obligated to all maintain within each other the communion of the saints. That whether uh, he's absent or present, Paul was hoping to find them standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he was looking and he was saying, in my absence, I'm hoping to find you guys striving together in one mind, in one spirit. Because we owe God, as members of that kingdom, as members of that citizenship, we owe God our love, our, our hearts, our mind, our devotion, and to one another as members of the family we owe that love one for another. We owe the maintaining of the community of saints. You know, recent, recently uh, we saw today as, uh, you know, recently it's been in the news uh, because of the, the House uh, passed two articles of impeachment against the president and immediately, uh, what was it, Christianity Today? They, they put out an article supporting the impeachment and then a couple of evangelicals went and slammed Christianity today and, and because they're wrong, you know, the president shouldn't be impeached. And then the Christian Post jumped in and they jumped in and they blasted Christianity today. And then some editors from the Christian Post, they resigned because the Christian Post should be a Christian magazine and not a pro-Trump magazine. And all this chaos being conducted publicly in front of the eyes of a fallen world. Could it be that sometimes we lose sight of where our true loyalties lie? Could it be that sometimes we get so caught up building the city of man that we neglect the obligations we owe to the city of God? And so we break fellowship over things that in this world are temporary. And we focus more on building the city of God. I honestly think when it comes to uh, politics, and politics could become stressful sometimes, but I honestly think ben Benjamin Russ, signer of the Declaration of Independence, had it correct. He said, I have alternatively been called an aristocrat and a democrat. He said, I'm neither. I'm a Christocrat. I believe that all power will fail of pr pr producing 
order and happiness in the hands of man. He alone who created and redeemed man is the only one qualified to govern him. And you know what? I think he hit the nail on the dot as to what our attitude should be. Yes, we have the right to vote, and as, 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 as being able to engage in politics and voting, we uh, tend to have disagreements, and that disagreement is we're basically disagreeing on how to best love our neighbor. But as believers, we ultimately recognize that all power will fail in producing happiness and joy. Only Christ could govern man. And so we are obligated to keep that communi communion of the saints because the reality is that you and I as believers, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this world, we will face opposition. And so courage is demanded. Paul said this in verse 28 and 29, and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That the opposition will come to the Philippian saints as they sought to live their lives worthy of the gospel was something that Paul clearly saw and clearly understood. But I want you to notice that the opposition that was coming to them was not coming because they were uh, picketing and protesting the inhumane infanticides that the, Philippians that the Romans practiced on, 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 children, on unwanted babies. It wasn't coming because they were lobbying the Roman Senate to try and uh, advocate for rights or equality or any of those kinds of things or because they were politically active. The opposition was coming to them simply because they were living a life worthy of the gospel. Paul told Timothy this, he said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, I think this persecution or this opposition that comes upon believers best illustrated in Genesis chapter 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. We know that Lot is a righteous man living in that city. We know that even in that city, Lot compromised many times, and he moved up. He was kind of like an elder in that city because the Bible says uh, he, he sat in the city gates where all the business was conducted. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah was a lawless, uh, sinful city. Ezekiel 16, 49 tells its sins. They're arrogant, they're proud, they're overfed, right? And yet here was Lot living there, and one day the people of Sodom came in their lawlessness and told Lot, send the men that are in your house out so that we could basically rape them all night. And Lot said, I can't. I'm duty bound to protect those under my roof. It was at that moment when Lot drew the line and said, look, what you're asking me to do, I cannot do. I'm duty bound that the city of Sodom turned against Lot. They turned against him and they started saying, who made you ruler over us? Who charged you? Who made you ruler? And they said, as a matter of fact, we're going to do worse with you than we were planning on doing with them. Lot wasn't in Sodom calling for national repentance. Lot wasn't pointing fingers. Lot wasn't out there trying to bring reform to Sodom and Gomorrah for all intents and purposes. Lot was compromising in every which way. Lot even offered, I'll give you my daughters, but, don't give me the, but, but let me protect the men. Now, I don't know if all the fathers in here, but when I get to heaven, I am personally drop-kicking Lot. Because how, how do you, I here, take my daughter, I mean, but it just shows the extent that Lot was willing to compromise, but where he couldn't compromise, that's where they turned against him, okay? And in warning, and in warning the Philippians of the opposition to come, 
Paul was echoing the very words of our Lord Jesus during the Last Supper when Jesus sat together with the disciples. They were thinking, they were looking at Jesus as the Messiah, and they were like, this is the guy, this, this is the king. I wonder who gets to sit on your right, on your left. Who, who, which one of us gets to be up there in the hierarchy of your new kingdom when you overthrow the Roman government and establish your kingdom? And Jesus said this, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. You know, I don't think the disciples sitting there that day rec- realized what Jesus was actually saying. But when we look at the history, we find that Stephen was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was he- uh, beheaded by Herod. Peter was scourged, thrown in prison, crucified. Matthias, Judas's replacement, was stoned and beheaded at Jerusalem. Andrew, Peter's brother, was killed in Odessa by crucifixion. Mark, during the celebration of Serpsis, they tied his feet to two horses and dragged them to pieces. Thaddeus, the brother of James, was crucified. Matthew went to India to evangelize, and he was cruelly beaten to death. Timothy, as the bishop of Ephesus, during the uh, celebration of Artemis, the, the, the goddess, a mob surrounded him and clubbed him to death. In the book of Revelations, we run into Antipas, who, was, who, who, who died as a martyr in Pergamum inside an iron bull. What they would do is they would construct a bull, throw you in it, and basically cook you in there alive. And they would have two holes in, in, the, in the nose and in the mouth of the bull so that when you started screaming on the inside, they would celebrate that they had somehow had magical powers and brought the bull back to life. John Fox, in his book of Martyrs, says that the history of the church may almost be said to be a history of the trials and sufferings of its members as experienced in the hands of wicked men. And it's not as if the opposition limits itself to men. How many men and women died in the Circus Maximus? I don't have time this morning to talk to you about people like Anne Askew, who during the reign of King Henry was declared a heretic. And she was stretched so much to the point where all her joints came apart. She was stretched so badly that she fainted from the pain. And yet when she woke up from that faint, she preached the gospel for the next two hours. She was declared a heretic and had to be brought out to be burnt in a chair because she could no longer walk and function. And yet at that last moment, the king offered her an escape. He said, I will give you a pardon if you recant. And Anne Askew said, I didn't come all the way here to deny my Lord. I can't tell you about people like John Fox. I don't have time to talk about people like John Fox, who after he was burned to death, they took his body, continued burning it, and slamming it with pikes and swords and stone because they wanted to crush his body into ashes to disseminate throughout the land because they didn't want any part of this heretic. You know, even in our, our day and in our time, we think that, you know, we're now in a good, tolerant society or whatever, but think about Pastor Wang Yi, who I quoted earlier. One Lord's Day, he and 160 of, the con- of his congregants were arrested by the Chinese government, thrown to jail for subverting the state. Even in our modern day, as, as we look at, believers are being persecuted. I think sometimes the founders of this country will be shocked at seeing so many Christians being dragged here in this country before uh, uh, human rights commissions with their livelihoods and their businesses all in jeopardy because they held on to standard Christian historical doctrine. I think they will be dumbfounded. But yet that's the reality. 
See, it's easy to stand up. It's easy for Paul. This was a church that Paul loved, that Paul enjoyed. These were people that uh, 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 served Paul, that ministered to him. They had sent Epaphroditus over to him to minister to him in his hour of need. This was a church that Paul loved, that he could bring and preach a happy message to, that he could uh, motivate them, that he could talk to them about. And yet he found himself warning them to remember to conduct themselves uh, with courage against the opposition because he could see the, wind, the winds the way they were blowing. Think about this, five years after Paul penned this letter to the Philippians, he himself would be beheaded in the Roman government. You know, as a Sunday school kid, I grew up listening to the stories of David and Daniel and the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all those things. And, all, and I have fond memories of all those stories. But you know what they never told me about in Sunday school? That there were others. Others were tortured, sawn asunder, stoned, abandoned. But yet they courageously held on to their confession. They courageously held on. In Romans 8, after talking about that we are in a fallen world, Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22, and he says, we are, after all, sheep to the slaughter. But even in saying we're sheep to the slaughter, he adds the assurance, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave his life for us. And if God be for us, who or what could be against us? And so that's why a Christian could face those things with courage, could face any conflict, any situation with courage, with the assurance that God is for us. But we have to realize that we are in that conflict. He says this in verse 27 and 30. He says he hopes to find them striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, having the same conflict that you saw I had and now I still had. See, this conflict is a conflict of faith. Paul told Timothy, uh, fight the good fight of the faith in 1 Timothy 6.2. Fight the good fight of the faith. You know, if I came to you and I said, do you have faith? You'd probably say, yeah, yeah, of course, we all have faith. But if I say, do you have the faith? You would say, well, wait a second, what do you mean by that? Because by adding that word the, I'm talking about a specific thing. And so when Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith, he's not talking about, you know, the, the, the normal and average Christian conflicts and fights that, that each and every one faces us, but rather he was telling Timothy to fight for the gospel of God, the faith, what constitutes Christianity with all its ethical standards and principles. And in other words, fight for Christianity itself, okay? It, it, the province of the churches are the Great Commission. Matthew Henry says that we are to admit the nations as disciples, that in the Great Commission, we are not commanded by God to go and denounce the judgment of God on nations or to denounce God's judgment against them as Jonah in Nineveh or other Old Testament prophets, but rather what we are called to is to make disciples out of them. And so each and every one of us as believers, we have the responsibility to go out into all the world and make disciples, to bring the nations and the cities under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul outlined our warfare. He said that uh, the weapons are war warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5, are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice that our war is against arguments, philosophies, and antichrist ideologies and systems that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Nowhere in the New Testament are we as believers called upon to assault demons or Satan or any of those things, but rather we are called upon to assault error with the truth of God. And today, in our day, 
more than ever, we need to constantly uphold that truth of God. The church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. And I know that uh, many times when, uh, when, when you're dealing in a church and people come to church, a lot of times people come hurt or broken and different things like that. And, and, in, their, and in people's dark day, it's easy to say, you know what, let's be more pragmatic than truthful. But you know what? It's the truth that sets us free. Jesus said, I sent my word and healed them, right? Jesus said, uh, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In Psalm 1, it is by meditating in the truth of the word of God that we make our way prosperous and have good success. In Psalm 19, the law of God revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. By it, one is warned. It is through the truth of God that as a young man, we could keep our way pure by paying heed to all the word of God. God, this is why Paul told the Ephesian saints, he said, you know what? I commit you unto the word when he was leaving them and said, I'm never going to see you again. I commit you to God and to the word of his truth, which is able to build you up and give you your inheritance. See, the reason we prize truth, the reason as, as Christians we, we, we cherish truth is because in that truth, it's the truth that carries us. You know, uh, a couple years ago, uh, as I'm closing out, a, a couple years ago, uh, the department that I worked for in the Elizabeth Board of Ed, they closed it down. And when they closed it down, we all got laid off. They had told me, don't worry, in November, you will get we're transferring you to this department. So I was like really excited because I got two months off, right? I got September and October, everyone's out of the house and I could enjoy the time off. But come November, the job didn't come. As we moved forward, they said, well, wait till the new year, January, and then January came and the job didn't come. And to boot, this happened right at the end of, of Bush's presidency and Obama came in, so the economy was, was bad, but it was starting to improve. So in New Jersey, if the unemployment rate is at 7%, you could keep filing extensions on your unemployment, and you could basically be on unemployment for two, three, four years, as long as the unemployment is at 7%. I had my unemployment, it went six, uh, six months. When I filed for the extension, they said, we can't give you one because the unemployment rate is at 6.75%. And... I have worked since I was 15 years old. I have never asked the government for anything. And you're telling me you can't give me an extra couple months? Yeah, that's, that's the mindset. And you know what? At that point, we're dipping into our savings. And you know what? It's one thing when you go, to, you go into your savings to fix something, you know, a water heater or something that broke in your house. But it's another when week after week, you're going into your savings just to meet your bills. And I could see our savings account. If this doesn't change, <laughs> eventually we're going to be in a mess. And I'm not saying I didn't have my bouts of depression. And I'm not saying I didn't have my discouraging moments. One of the worst moments I told my wife, when I would drop off the kids in the morning, not having a place to go to was the most depressing thing. I felt like a big loser sometimes. Nobody wants me. Nobody wants to hire me. Right? I have nowhere to go. And to boot, there were, I, made, I applied at certain places, and they, but they would look at my resume and they would say, well, you worked for the Elizabeth Board of Ed for the past 15 years. I go, yeah, and you were laid off because of budget cuts? Yeah. They go, well, let me ask you this. If they called you back, would you go? And I, as a Christian, was like, 
Yeah, I would. Okay, thank you. We'll be in contact with you, Mr. <laughs> you know, but I had to tell the truth. I, yeah, I would go back. And you know what? Things were bad. But I'll tell you what. You know what carried me through all that? The doctrine of the providence of God. Knowing that God is on my side, working all things for my good, and that somehow, some way, I'm going to look back at this moment, and I'm going to rejoice that this took place. I can't see it right now. I can't see God's hand, but I know it's there. See, Paul was in prison, and he could see that even though he was in prison, the gospel was spreading all throughout the Roman Empire, and so he could rejoice in that. And it's good when you and I are in our dark place and we could see the hand of God working on our behalf, but even when we can't see the hand of God, we know it's there. See, what got me through was that theology, was that truth, and I was glad for the people who taught it to me. And so in the same way, I understand that it's hard and rough sometimes when we're going through life to focus on truth, but it's the truth that the believer holds to that carries him out. See, all those heroes of faith in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it was their confidence in the truth of God that allowed them to uh, do all the feats that they did, to overcome all the situations in their life, to overcome all the conflicts in their life. And in our day and age, as we focus on the truth of God, as we focus on the word of God, we could co combat every opposition, every conflict, and walk into heaven in the same way that Paul walked into heaven when he said, I have finished my race, I have kept the faith, and I know a crown is awaiting for me. And so as we come to the end of 2019 and we get ready to go into 2020, are, will there be conflicts as a, uh, 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 an opposition to the church as a whole, to, to the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, absolutely. Will there be individual conflicts and situations that you and I are going to face? Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? He's promised he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that in all these things, we are more than conquerors because we have the assurance that he loved us and took care of us. And so that's why whether we're supervised or unsupervised, we maintain our conduct in the kingdom of God, we maintain our courage in the midst of opposition, and we continue to fight in that conflict of the faith, knowing that we have a crown that's awaiting for us in the city of God. <laughs>